be in the book of Daniel uh, tonight, and Lord willing, for the next several weeks. We're going through a series on exile, which is the Bible's metaphor for uh, our situation as Christians in the world. That we're not at home here, and we don't feel at home here. Um, there's a strangeness that comes into our already pretty strange lives when you become a Christian uh, that makes you feel more isolated and less like you fit in, even if you live in the place that you grew up. And the Bible says this is normal for Christians, and we've looked at a couple of passages about it. One was a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the exiles telling them to settle down and seek the uh, prosperity and, and uh, blessing of the place where they're sent into exile, even though it was a pretty terrible place they had to go. Um, and then we looked in 1 Peter where he talked about Christians being exiles scattered in the world by God. Like the, the experience that the Israelites had in Babylon is a metaphor for our lives where we are, even though we like where we are a lot better than they did. And so the main ways we think about and understand this idea of being exiles, though, is through the stories of the Bible you know, from uh, Esther and from Daniel. And here are the experience of people and how they try to sort out what it means to live in this place. And in the book of Daniel, the early part of it, you've got Daniel and he's got three friends. And they were very early in the exile, probably 600 years before Jesus came. And they got taken off having seen the cruelties of sieges and conquest of the Babylonians in Israel. They've been overrun. Everything they loved was ruined. Um, everything they hoped in and appreciated was gone. And they got dragged off 550 miles across the desert to the heart of Babylon, their enemy's country. And now that's where they're living and that's where they're going to live for the rest of their lives. Uh, no matter how long they live, apparently Daniel lived a long time there. But they've seen how awful these uh, Babylonians were, how cruel they were in battle, um, and they hated them. You know, it's just uh, your worst enemy that's overrun you and conquered you, and now you have to go live with them. And that's a lot of indignity and shame and resentment and anger and all sorts of things would come up. Besides that, there these people, the Babylonians, think that they beaten Israel's God. You're like, yeah, we, we're really afraid of your God because we ran right over you when we uh, attacked you. And so now they live in a place where their God is, is uh, disregarded for the most part or mocked if anybody thinks about him at all. And that's a very frustrating thing. There's no cultural support for their faith. You know, nothing to reinforce what they believe and are trying to cling to, even though they're exiles like this. Um, surrounded by people they hate, and, and for Daniel and his friends, it's, uh, most likely they were made eunuchs uh, to have the job that they got in the administration there. And so they're trying to figure out, well, what does life look like for me? How am I supposed to act? You know, am I supposed to be a go-along, to get-along person here and be nice? Or am I supposed to, you know, form a resistance movement and try to undermine them at every point that I can? I mean, what am I supposed to do? And they were... They ran into a lot of problems with that question that are very hard to sort out, and we'll look at some of them and try to sort them out for ourselves. Today, though, I want to look at this one problem they face that really comes up in this first chapter, and that is how do you, how do you find 
the middle way or the balance or the right thing between being a total sellout and accommodating the culture around you or being a prickly withdrawing person that uh, refuses to engage with or love anybody around you. You know, you, you can either be a sellout or you can be a withdrawer. And both of those things aren't really given to us as the picture of what we should do. It's something different than that and somewhere in between that. But man, it's hard to know in everyday situations whether you're selling out and accommodating too much or whether you're withdrawing too much and being too prickly. And so as we read this fairly long chapter, this account, just think about that and think about the decisions they're having to make and where are they going to draw lines, where are they going to say yes and where are they going to say no? And where are they saying yes when they should be knowing and no when they should be yes? Right? So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray and then we'll read this chapter. Father, help us, please, um, both to see ourselves as you see us and our circumstances as you see them, um, and, but also to try to navigate these waters uh, of wisdom as we try to live in exile and be your representatives here and uh, live with some of the uncertainty and ambiguity that we necessarily face. So come help us. Speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, well, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you're in worse condition than the other youths who are of your own age? Uh, you'd endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for ten days, and at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams, and at the end of the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, 
he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel's big for Sunday school. Everybody wants to use Daniel in Sunday school. And it's because he's courageous and has strong faith in a tough situation, I think. But it seems like the way the Sunday school lesson usually goes is, Daniel is a good lesson for you to see that if you'll just do the right thing in every circumstance, God will make everything go okay for you. Do the right thing in every circumstance, and God will make everything go okay for you. Now that's, that'll preach. That's a good, that's an easy lesson to draw. Until you start reading the text and trying to figure out, wait, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Because there's some weird stuff happening in the book of Daniel. And by the time you look at it very closely, you're thinking, hey, are you supposed to be doing that? Because <laughs> uh, the decisions he makes are strange to us. I'll give you a couple of examples. One, um, and frame this, Daniel and his friends are not cowards, right? They're pretty much expecting to die in Babylon over something. You know, they're eventually going to draw a line in the sand, they can't cross, and they're going to get killed. And they, all of them nearly got killed in Babylon because of the stands that they took out of faithfulness to God. So they're not chickens, Right? The reason for their decision-making is not fear uh, for the most part. They look better than most with regard to fear. But they're going to have to kind of decide, which hill am I going to die on? You know, like, where am I going to draw the line in the sand and stick my head in the noose and say, all right, you know, I guess the gig's up, do your worst. And so the first place they might decide to do that is with school. They're sent to the Chaldean school when they get there. The Chaldean school, that means, it says the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they're going to learn Aramaic, and they're going to learn history from a Babylonian perspective. And, you know, there's a little something about the victors writing the history books. And I'm sure it's not the worldview that their believing parents wanted them to have in history class in Chaldean school. And they're going to learn about religion in school because they don't have these compunctions about church and state. And it ain't going to be the religion of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's going to be Aku, the moon god, and Nebo. Right? And that's not okay. Right? And not only that, this school is basically Hogwarts. Because the reason it's a Chaldean school instead of a Babylonian school is because... The Chaldeans were known for magic and the dark arts. And that's what you went to school to learn. Right? Um, they learned how to do incantations and spells. They learned how to read astrological signs and interpret dreams. They learned how to read signs and omens of the future from the livers of dead animals. And um, this was their schooling. So when they see first day the syllabus is handed out, they're like, well, it didn't take long, but yep, uh, I can't do this. I mean, have you read Deuteronomy? You know, where he says in Deuteronomy 18, you know, don't follow the abominable practices of the nations like learning divination. This is an abomination to Yahweh. Yet not a subtle uh, description of how God looks at divination. 
And here they are, first day of divination school, and they're like, okay, here I stand. I can do no other. Stick my head into the noose. Uh, love you, see ya, because it's over for me. But that's not what they did. Then um, they got names, new names. They liked their old names. They kept using their old names. Daniel does when he writes about them, for the most part. But they were given names sort of to force their assimilation. Because they all had, like, really spiritual, godly names. Daniel's name meant, God is my judge. And so they named him Belshazzar, or Belteshazzar. I never, I'm not pronouncing it right. But that name means something along the lines of, uh, my life is a prayer to the Babylonian goddess. That's your name from now on. Prayer to the Babylonian goddess. Hananiah. The name means Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach is the name he got. That means I serve Aku, the moon god. That's your name now. Mishael. Who is what God is? That's what his name means. And he gets Meshach. Who is like Aku? Azariah. Yahweh is my help. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Stick your head into the news. I can't do this, right? Um, this I have to draw the line at. Like if somebody offered you a job in business and they said, but to take this job, you're going to have to change your name to Money is My God, and that's your name from now on, would you take that job? Or would you say, I can't do that. I'm a Christian, right? You know, surely they're drawing the line here. It's blasphemous to call me those names. I can't be a part of blasphemy. So they reject that, right? Nope. <laughs> then they get jobs. Working for Nebuchadnezzar as magicians. <laughs> and so their job is to further the interests and enterprise of their most hated enemy the spread of the Babylonian Empire and the spread of the Babylonian religion and the spread of Babylonian notorious cruelty, that's their job to uh, promote the interests of the evil empire. Now there, it's like, I'm tearing my clothes. I can't do that. Um, thanks for the schooling and the vegetables. But you know, i got to stick my head in the noose now because I can't do this. That's blasphemy. And that's not what they do. They collaborate with these pagans. But then it comes to food. So they're given this menu from the king's table. And, and Daniel's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I can't do that. And it's hard to figure out why. Because it's not a kosher issue. There's not really a way they could have kept kosher in Babylon. So you're trying to figure out, like, why would they be defiling themselves to eat this food? And it's hard to say. The, like, the smart commentators don't really know. Some say maybe it's, they thought that if they indulged in the luxuries of the king's table, it would, it would sort of uh, compromise them. You know, they'd just sort of be lulled to spiritual sleep by the delicacies of the court. That may be it. I don't know. Um, it could be that maybe it's something connected to idols and the food being blessed by idols, but 
surely the vegetables would have been too. The point is, I don't know why they felt like they couldn't eat the food. Um, but surely what they're going to do with regard to food is like, oh, compared to the other stuff, this is no big deal. Like, I think, I don't think any of my fellow believers are going to criticize me if I eat this food. So yeah, sure, go ahead, bring the food. But no, on the food, they stick their head into the news and say, all right, this is it. I figured it was coming. Here I stand. That's the call they made. Here. Food. That's, that's the call they made. So now, I don't know how you teach this in children's Sunday school um, to say, you know, be like Daniel. I don't know if you're supposed to be like Daniel with these things. I'm guessing Daniel didn't know very well for sure what he was supposed to do, but he was trying to do the best he could, it seems to me. Um, but I know this. If we, somebody, if we saw somebody sending their kids to Hogwarts, you know, or something, you know, worse... We'd say you're a sellout and you're being unfaithful to God and you're going to be under the discipline of the church. Or if we saw someone uh, working at, in Vichy uh, Babylon and <laughs> collaborating with our oppressors, we'd say that's not okay. That's not an acceptable option for you. And you can't take blasphemous, blasphemous names. I mean, what, what part of... The Christian faith, don't you understand if you think it's okay to take a blasphemous name and become a diviner, doing divination and reading you know, animal livers for omens at work. You know, we would say that's way over the line. What are you thinking? That can't be the right call to make. And with food, if somebody makes a stand on that, we'd be like, what are you being so prickly and withdrawn for? Like, you're not being, you know, you're not seeking the prosperity of Babylon and engaging with them and trying to you know, promote the worship of Yahweh among them. You're just being difficult over nothing with regard to this food. At least that's what I think we would do. But when I read this and think about it, I think this is what we all face less dramatically as exiles in the world. We live in a place where our God is, is uh, not respected for the most part, or derided, maybe mocked at times. Not a lot of cultural supports for our faith and our ethics. And we have to figure out, what does it look like to live faithfully here? Like, this is where we've been called to be. How do we, how do we navigate it? How do we go between, Nick's going to say I said this wrong, between Scylla and Charybdis. That's close. So how do we navigate it between selling out and withdrawing unfaithfully? Um, when, do you, when do you yes and when do you no? And how do you know? Um, and I don't have an easy answer for you on this. Um, I'm still looking for that version of Christianity that gets criticized all the time where we have the easy answers so we don't have to think. I'm ready to sign up for that. <laughs> but we don't have that here. Exile is messy is what you learn from this. It's messy to live in exile. You, you have to make calls that aren't easy. It's not easy to lock it down and make everything fine. You're not always going to know what's the best thing to do. Sometimes you pay your money, you take your chances. Right? And that doesn't sound super spiritual. And that's, that's from somebody that believes that this book is from God. Like all of it. And it's really true. But we don't have exhaustive truth from God. We don't know everything there is. And what we have in the Bible is not a code book that says in every circumstance you're going to know the one right thing to do. We aren't given that. There's a tremendous need for wisdom and the wisdom of the community together. Um, it's the reason a lot of this is given to us in stories rather than a code book 
so we can try to sort it out together and learn and feel our way forward in the situation that we're in. Quick aside, you know where, you know where the Pharisees came from in the New Testament that Jesus always argued with, the, the overly strict uh, sect in Judaism? Their roots basically come from ex- the exile. Because there were people who said, you know what, the reason we lost the temple and got it torn down and had to go into exile was because we were overworldly. We were accommodated to the world around us. We were just going along to get along and we weren't faithful to God and we wouldn't draw lines where we had to. And so we got sent into exile. And I'm telling you, now that we're back from exile, if there's one thing we're not going to do again, it's go worldly. We are not going to compromise with the cultures around us anymore. We're going to be strict. We're going to lock this thing down. We're going to get everybody together in Israel and not let anybody bother us. And we're going to be faithful, faithful, faithful from now on. And I respect that. Don't, don't you? I mean, say, you know, man, if, if the story of my people has been this kind of misery because we were uh, over-accommodated to the world, then... Let's not do that again. And their approach to that was to lock it down. They had rules for everything. Everything was codified. You didn't have gray areas morally in your life uh, as best they could manage. You knew exactly what to do all the time, which is very appealing, but not a biblical ethic. And so they always butted heads with Jesus about this. Our calling is not to get in a huddle where we can lock everything down and not have to make any uncomfortable decisions where we all agree with each other about every decision we're making. Our calling is to be in exile. And one of the main reasons to be in exile, scattered in the nations by God, is so that we can speak about the hope that is in Jesus Christ to the people around us. So we're here to do mission. And mission is messy. And it's very uncomfortable in a lot of situations, both to try to figure out what you're doing and to deal with what your friends are doing, (laughs) especially when they disagree with you. It's very difficult for us to do. We're supposed to embrace the messiness of exile so that we can do the mission we've been given to do by Jesus. That's our calling. So, um, a couple of points of perspective for us as we try to sort this out. And we'll come back to some of these subjects. But one one perspective for you in exile, when you're trying to figure out what to do, is to honor your scruples. If you've got an uneasy conscience about something, you follow it. Daniel, I don't know, I don't understand the food issue for Daniel in this passage, but he had a conscience scruple about it, and he followed it. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, in Corinth, the church in the New Testament, where uh, they were in a very messy church because it was very missional and it was very unpredictable, and they had all kind of problems. That you would think, wow, like who taught you about the Christian faith? Because you're a mess, right? But but one of the things that they had to learn to do was to honor their scruples, like if they were sort of spooked by food that had come from an an idol feast or from a butcher that was sacrificing to the gods. Paul basically said, you don't have to be spooked by that. You can eat that food just fine. But if if it really bugs you and you have a scruple about it in your conscience, well, honor that scruple and don't eat it. And if your friend is really bugged by you eating it, you you could probably let it go go by too. But honoring your scruples while... While you're seeking to grow in wisdom and get your scruples more lined up with with, uh, God's will and His Word, 
you're supposed to honor your scruples. So don't just abuse your conscience with things. But uh, we have these stories, and we live together in a community of Christians so we can learn and grow in wisdom and uh, more and more get our scruples lined up with what Jesus says. All right, so first, honor your scruples. The second thing is don't be a coward, which is kind of easy to say right now. <laughs> I'm not under the gun. But, um, but you do learn from Daniel and his friends. They knew that if you're going to live in exile, there's going to be heat. And you, you need to be okay with that and prepare for it. We don't get much heat at all in our culture, and thank the Lord for that, um, because I'm not so sure I passed the coward test. But the uh, but there's some cost socially to being a Christian and to being known as a Christian. It's why it makes you a little timid to tell people that you're a Christian or that you go to church. Um, but you just gotta sign up for that. Um, there are gonna be places where you have to draw the line. And people are going to think you're an idiot or a fool. And that'll hurt. But that's part of the cost, right? Of being in exile. Sometimes, at some point, you just have to sew your heart onto your sleeve and wait for the axe to fall, right? It's an old Bill Maloney line. And it's true. Third thing. Err on the side of being missional. It's always kind of a tension you'll find, if you don't already know this, in the Christian life between um, being engaged in people's lives for the sake of Jesus and having a tidy, predictable life. And uh, you're supposed to be preferring uh, the messiness of engaging with people for Jesus' sake to your tidiness in your own life and sense of morality. Prefer, err on the side of being missional. Um, you know, the reason they went into exile partly was because the whole point of Israel all along, they neglected. Right when God first called Abraham and started Israel, he said, I'm going to bless you, bless your family, and make you the father of a multitude of nations. And through your family, every nation on earth is going to be blessed. You're my missional force. I want you to spread the knowledge of the true and living God all over the world as a light to the nations. And they said, uh, thank you. We like being your people, but no. We don't like the nations. We don't want to go to them. We don't want the messiness of that or the inconvenience of it. We don't want to have to love people that are hard to love, and we're not going. And so God said, yes, you are, and sent them into exile. In the early church, after it's supposed to be better, you know, after the resurrection of Jesus, the early church was told, you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to talk about the hope of Jesus. And by Acts 7, they had gone to Jerusalem and we're in Jerusalem, <laughs> right? You know. And so they got persecuted and scattered in the nations. And that's why we're here today, is we're scattered in the nations by God to be missional. And so loving our neighbors is more important than having a nice, tidy sense that you're doing everything right. And I know that's not super specific, but it's a general attitude. It's more important to care about your neighbor and put yourself out there than it is to be able to think, I know I did everything right today. I checked off all the boxes of what a good Christian does. And, you know, there aren't many days in exile when you get to check off all the little boxes of what a good Christian does. And I mean the days where you're trying to, not the days when you're just being uh, stubborn. But, like, when you're really trying to serve the Lord, you're still making judgment calls all the time. And, you know, the more you hang out with people who believe things very different from you, 
the more you're going to be like saying, I think that was the right way to say that or a helpful way to say that, but I don't really know. I love that past. Maybe I shouldn't have. I, I mean, it's messy. And it's supposed to be messy. So err on the side of being missional. Uh, that's why you were scattered here in the first place. And then, this sounds really lame, but it, it's important. Be nice to each other in exile. Because it's hard. And the last thing you need if you're going to be useful in this city for the sake of Jesus' mission is to be constantly fighting a rearguard action against Christians who are criticizing you and thinking that you're doing it wrong all the time. And so let's give each other a little uh, sympathy that this is hard and some of the judgment calls are hard and not just beat each other to death if we disagree about a decision. Right? I feel pretty sure that we would have brought Daniel up on charges at church for what we read in Daniel 1. Pretty sure we can make it stick. Uh, but let's not. <laughs> let's not do that. Um, man, you know the, the Galatian church that like it was unlike the Corinthian church. The Galatian church was very tidy. Everything was buttoned down. And when Paul wrote to them, he said, like, if you bite and devour each other, you're going to consume each other. What are you thinking? Don't bite and devour each other. And that's uh, exceptionally important for us if we're going to make it in exile, not to have to constantly fight rearguard actions against our own team. Um, because you're going to get it wrong sometimes, and your friends here are going to get it wrong sometimes. And we're going to have to get okay with that. Nobody's just going to nail this every time. Like, for instance, what's the right way as an exile in the nations to approach the schooling of your children? Well, it's clearly homeschooling, right? <laughs> or certainly, certainly Christian schooling. I mean, you can't believe that education is value and religion neutral. You have to certainly do Christian schooling, right? Or public schooling. You're going to raise your kids uh, to be missional and as exiles. You need to get them somewhere where they can start loving non-Christians. That's the only right way to do it as a Christian, isn't it? So what do you do when you've made this super difficult decision, super convictional decision for you and your children, and somebody in your church makes a different decision with their children? Are you going to be able just to say, God bless you. That's a hard call. And uh, I love you. I respect you. I'm going to pray for you. Do that for me too. Um, and let's fight this the best way we can. Or are you going to say, well, if you really loved your children and were really a Christian, you'd do it my way. I mean, the rear guard action doesn't help us in a situation like that. Look, everybody's school choice should make it better than the Chaldean school. <laughs> I mean, give them that. Or what about this? Can you go work for the Empire? Can you go work for Raytheon? He said, risking all of the giving of the church. <laughs> you want to further the imperial pretensions of the Empire? Of Babylon? Well, some people might decide not to. And a lot of people decide to. Daniel decided to. 
and didn't get criticized for it. When Joseph got a job for Pharaoh, he took the job and did it great. When the Roman soldiers in Israel went to hear John the Baptist preach, and he said, repent, they said, what does that look like for us? He didn't say quit being a Roman soldier, quit, quit furthering the aims of imperial Rome. He said quit being extortionists. He didn't say quit being soldiers. Right? Roman centurion wasn't told, uh, you have great faith, but unless you quit your job, you don't have any good faith. But like, it's a hard question. I know a lot of you who work in the defense industry or work for law enforcement or something like that, you have to think about how do my divided loyalties affect me and my job. But man, you don't need us sniping at your heels as we do that. Right. Uh, if you lived in Babylon, would you say the Pledge of Allegiance at school in the morning? Do you live in Babylon? <laughs> well, some, some Christians are going to decide no, well, they can't do that because of a different allegiance. And some Christians are going to say, oh, come on. I love my country, and this doesn't feel disloyal to God. And we're just going to have to say, good for you. Let's, uh, let's get on with it. It's messy here, isn't it? But be nice to each other. Um, that's really hard. Especially if you start raising kids. And you think, oh, oh i got to protect them. i got to make sure nothing bad happens. i got to make sure... Their lives are not messy and exilic and missional. And man, it's doubly hard then. Be nice to people trying to raise kids who are Christians. So, but here, I want us to be a church that prefers the messiness of mission to the sterility of having everything locked down. If we just want to form a club where everybody agrees on everything so we don't have to ask a lot of questions and don't have to live with each other where it's hard, this isn't worth doing to me. There are other places you could go. Um, I, I don't want us to be sterile. I want us to invite the messiness of mission here. And I'll regret that one day, I'm sure, and somebody will remind me, you wanted this, but I do want this. I do want this. And the thing to remember as you try to sort it out is this. What we see is the little picture. Me trying to know what it means to be faithful to Jesus day to day, knowing how to handle myself, where to draw lines, where not to draw lines, where to engage, where not to engage. And I'm just trying to muddle through thinking that and not knowing at the end of the day how well I did. But there's a bigger picture of what's going on because God sent Daniel and his friends into exile and God has sent us into the nations in exile. And he is writing a big story fixing the world. Like when he told Abraham, I'm going to fix the world through your family, he still is going to do that. He's still fixing the world, and he wants all the world, so he scatters his people all over the world, some places harder than others. And um, because he's keeping his promise, that Jesus looks at his rebellious world in mercy and says, I'm going to forgive you and restore you and fix you, and I want my people to be my embassy in Tucson to go out uh, with the hope that they've been given to share with other people who need that hope as badly as we have. And he's doing that. And you get little hints of this in Daniel's story. One of these implements they brought from the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know this for sure, but it sure feels a little bit like when the Israelites would see him drag those implements out and they would use them for divination and things, which is pretty creepy. But they'd say, oh yeah, those, those are from the temple in Jerusalem. God has made promises he's going to keep. And it might have been a reinforcement to him. And if you really want to think about the big picture, 
Think about uh, Christmas. Because there's a weird uh, scenario around the birth of Jesus, and that is some indeterminate number of wise men, magicians from Chaldea, came looking for the king of the Jews. Now, how in the world did they know anything about the king of the Jews? Daniel and his friends who had lived there, who tried their best, probably got it wrong a lot, had been there representing Yahweh. And by the time Jesus came, God had people in Chaldea. And uh, now he's got people all over the world because lame Christians like us have been scattered as exiles here. And it's a good gig to have, even if it's messy. Let's pray.